0: Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson, and I'm Kathleen Shannon.
1: I'm Jeremy Bailey, and I am Being Boss.
2: Today, we're talking about design thinking with Jeremy Bailey. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club.
0: Okay, bosses, I was shocked whenever Emily shared with me this week that she once had a coaching client who had a stack of unsent invoices for clients, and they were like months old. She was literally leaving money on the table. Now, I don't know about you bosses listening, but I've got bills to pay. And sometimes it can be hard to stay on top of billing, not to mention getting over the anxiety of asking someone for money, even if you earned it. And this is why I love FreshBooks Cloud Accounting so much. It makes billing your clients so easy, professional, and even automated. FreshBooks has so many invoicing features, including getting paid a deposit up front, setting up recurring invoices for retainer clients, and even being able to see when a client has opened their invoice. Try FreshBooks Cloud Accounting for free by going to freshbooks.com beingboss and enter beingboss in the how did you hear about us section.
2: We know Jeremy Bailey as the creative director for Product at FreshBooks, where he leads a passionate team of designers striving to create a world where anyone can lead a successful small business without ever having to learn accounting. But he also moonlights as the owner of his own small business, performing as a self-proclaimed famous new media artist, playfully solving big problems with creativity and technology, often very poorly, on the internet and in cities all over the world.
0: Jeremy, it's so exciting to see your face and have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm really excited to be here, despite uh, for your listeners, if they don't know, I'm on the train tracks right now, or there are trains going by behind me, so I apologize about that.
0: I love it. So you're at FreshBooks headquarters where we had Being Boss Toronto and we loved getting to hang with you guys there and we had like a few speakers giving talks in between our live podcast recording and you gave a talk all about the creative process and ideation and we really wanted to bring you on the show to talk about that. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at FreshBooks?
1: Yeah, so, um, I'm creative director at Freshbooks, uh, which is kind of an, an maybe I, an intentionally ambiguous term, uh, but I basically direct, uh, the design teams here, specifically the product design team. Um, but that more and more that's like also helping us just all be more creative and produce better work. Um, so that's why I say it's ambiguous. I also work as, um, an artist part time, uh, which Freshbooks has always very generously supported, uh, my life as like a, I have a persona online who calls himself a self. He's a self-proclaimed famous new media artist. So he goes around trying to save the world rather naively with technology and solution first kind of thinking. He's kind of the antithesis uh, of my, myself as a as a creative director but um he's quite hilarious in how wait he hold
0: up. up is this kind of like um like jim carrey's man in the moon kind <laughs> of situation what's that do you know who i'm talking about it's like andy kaufman yes yeah, I guess andy kaufman a little
1: kaufman. bit a little bit, little bit of, i definitely love andy kaufman's comedy and yes i have sort of like a, this it, he's like a comedian it's comic in a way uh, I wear like sh- jorts and a turtleneck. And so sometimes most people actually know me as that, not as creative director at FreshBooks. Most people, uh, that I run into, like when I'm speaking as a designer will be like, wait a second, are you that guy that <laughs> wears a turtleneck and does augmented reality software (laughs) performances. And we're like, yeah, but by day, I'm also (laughs) a creative director.
0: That is so funny. And I want to clarify for our listeners. So FreshBooks does sponsor Being Boss, and we've worked with you guys for a long time. But this is in no way an ad for FreshBooks. We just really wanted to talk to you as a creative on that team. I just want to clarify that. But, okay, we need to go back to this thing, though. You're wearing a turtleneck and jorts. And, like, (laughs) where are you performing at? Like, what kind of stuff... Like what? Can you yeah, yeah. A I mean, that's more? what I started
1: at doing. That's what okay. I went to school for. Um, so, I think as a performance artist, I guess that's the category I fit into. But I come from kind of a video art background. That's what I. That's what I went to school for. And there's like a rich history that goes back to the 1970s of people performing with technology. People like Yoko Ono and Nam June and John Cage. Like all of these. Like it's, it's wrapped up in. In. And there's like a rich cultural history there. Um, but the best history from that time were, was that people started to make, kind of, uh, make up their own identities or design their own identities as persona. And sort of it was the first time that they could get their faces on mainstream media. Like in the 1970s, actually, you know, it was crazy to have your face on TV, right? You would, you would have had to be on the new nightly news or a celebrity or something. So at that time, like artists started performing, uh, like on television, right? For the first time, they started recording themselves and calling it, uh, I don't know, video art. And that's my background. Um, and so when I, I went to grad school for video art, um, my thesis was like, what's changed since the 1970s? Like, how do we, you know, what devices do we f- perform for today? And from, you know, at that time, it was like web cameras and laptops had become, you know, the devices we perform for. And then like mobile phones and like the internet and live streaming and, uh, that is so that so much of that is wrapped up in this like in the same kind of experiments that were having in the 1970s that resulted in these like, you know, just being famous on the Internet. So or being famous on TV, but the act of pretending to be famous. So I pretend to be famous on the Internet, I guess. is the,
0: That's <laughs> is hilarious. the bottom okay, line. I feel like I'm getting it.
1: Like, yeah, I'm famous on the Internet. It's like saying you're famous in Tokyo or <laughs> famous <laughs> wherever, you know. Um, we're all sort of performing fame every day. And actually like I believe that that's actually like a really powerful thing. That's kind of something that was promised when they remember when the internet came along and they're like, now the media is in your hands yeah. And then like I don't know, Facebook came along and ruined it for us or whatever, but made you know manipulated the elections. but before that right <laughs> Before that, right? like it, it was, the media was in our hands and that was the original promise. and I still believe that that's like a really radical, exciting reality and gesture just to get out there like you are with your podcast or whomever and express yourself in the internet for me as a young artist anyway but that was like that was where the audience was and and I could see that it, it was moving there more and more it was less and less like i started out doing film and video festivals and those were really exciting too but less and less audiences were there and more and more the people that understood kind of the crazy things I was doing were online. And now, of course, like I can't even compete in a way. So I'm just like a marginal figure in what is otherwise like a huge sea of zany, crazy things going on on the Internet. But yeah, that's why I do it, why I love doing it still.
2: So. I love this so much. I love this like this form of self-expression that really is driven by this. um, I don't know, I guess the technology to to share in a lot of ways like if it weren't it sounds like if it weren't for the the avenue of sharing this wouldn't be created in quite the same way so i love that this is creation for the purpose of sharing in ways that um not a lot of people like a lot of people who paint will paint for themselves or whatever but this is really for the purpose of sharing it with others in whatever avenue is currently available And that's kind
1: of like what the internet changed about self-expression in a way, I might say, is that it like, it became, and in the 1970s and 60s, they had this idea of a happening. Are you familiar with this concept? I don't know, like people like John Lennon and Yoko Ono that I mentioned earlier, John Cage, they had this concept that like art was no longer going to happen on the wall. It was going to happen in the head, on, you know, the, like in the brain, we were going to create artworks inside people's heads often when I perform live I'll like single someone out and embarrass them and say like we just made an artwork called your head is really warm and embarrassed right now right <laughs> but like yeah it was a really kind of a uh, political or almost like radical act because the idea that artwork couldn't be owned or belong to someone but it belonged to us all and that we could come together in these things called happenings uh which were like just events where people got together and shared or did one thing together en masse, what we now might call like, I don't know, user generated content or something like that. But the, <laughs> It's like the late right? we, we businessified it, businessified it. But back then it was like, yeah, it was it, the original poet, poetry of that is that it's like people coming together and not to make something that they're trying to sell, but just because they want to connect. And I think that's, what's always been excited to me, exciting to me about art and making and design anyway is, is, is sharing, right? Listening and giving back.
0: Yeah, I feel like the main question that I was always asking myself in art school, in college, was like, what is art? And I feel like everything that you're describing here and the internet itself really helps blur the line between what is art and what isn't, right? Yeah. Everything's a creation. And that even brings me back to this idea that our podcast is for creative entrepreneurs, And everybody's creative. like So it's kind of a little bit – it's a little redundant almost to say creative entrepreneur um, because all entrepreneurs are creative and you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be creative. Um, So I don't know. I just think that's really cool. So with this side hustle, I just am a little curious a little bit more about it. Whenever you talked about – you know, making art and not really needing to monetize it? Like, is it something that you've ever ventured down monetizing? Or do you like having a day job to really fund like a side hustle or to give yourself room to breathe and be creative on the side?
1: Yeah, so I would say like it's it's been a journey to a certain extent. Like after I finished art school, of course I wanted to do it full time. But then I also didn't want to compromise conceptually on what I was doing you know, just to sell something. Um, And I've tried little experiments here and there, and I still have works that I do sell and then other works that I don't. But generally speaking, the reason I did it and started doing it was not for that reason. And so it always feels like when I try and fit it in that box, it's a little bit contrived. So I used to be really ashamed that I had like, I've always had a side hustle, and it's always been kind of easy to make money in design for me. I grew up in a design family. My dad had a design agency, and I've been kind of doing it since I... As, as long as I can remember, actually, an embarrassingly long time. Um, and so when I finished, I was kind of ashamed, though, because in the art community, anyway, you're taught, like, don't let people know you have this, like, keep the mystery and mystique and, you know, the mythology. Train going by. <laughs> the mythology of being an artist. Keep that alive, right? Like, just keep that, because that's what the rom- the audience wants. They want that romance. Like, how does how does he do it? <laughs> And then a few years ago, I just started being honest, like, look, I've never made more than $10,000 a year as an artist. And the average artist uh, internationally makes less than $10,000 a year. It's among the most precarious class of working creatives that exist on the planet. And so, you know, we all have to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about what's you know going on here. And yes, some people are pursuing their passion, but other people actually are trying to also make a living and they, you know, but a lot of us end up with side hustles and then we're ashamed of it. And I don't feel like that's really helpful or useful. So more and more uh, now I just like, you know, I say, of course I don't make a living as an artist. We're really not set up for that to work out. In fact, conceptually it didn't even make sense. I wish there was a way Um, in Canada. It's a little bit easier because we have grants, but um, yeah, like I actually like doing both and I get a lot of energy, a lot of my creative Uh, energy and my ideas come out of my professional life now. So personally, I I advocate for like having two things because, you know, you're kind of each one is feeding the other. And I often like make fun of what I do by day and my performances anyway. So.
2: (laughs) Right. It gives you gives you some experience to talk about for sure.
1: Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Yeah, definitely working in technology. I will say there are a lot of ridiculous things that happen. Uh, It makes for good comedy. (laughs) It does make for good comedy. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I love this. I I do sometimes get really dreamy and Kathleen and I have talked about this multiple times about what it would be like to be creative for creativity's sake, not be creative for uh for revenue's sake in some ways. And I've even I've even talked to for example, like t-shirt designers who will really want to create a certain kind of t-shirt, but they know the thing that sells is the t-shirts with the owls on it or whatever it may be. <laughs> and so then they're forced to like keep doing the owl, even right. if they don't want to. Um, and I think, I think some really great creative magic can come from being able to be creative without having to worry about monetization. So I do kind of envy that at least a little bit.
0: Before we move (laughs) forward from that conversation I want to know a little bit about how you balance your time because that's something that people talk about a lot whenever it comes to wanting to either pursue a passion project on the side if they're or a side hustle or even like if they're working for themselves if they want to create for creativity's sake just really finding the time and even energy to do that. So do you have any systems or habits in place that allow you to (laughs) get it all done? I wish I had
1: like yeah HubSpot's five tips for Right. how to balance them. Do you have a things. listicle for this that you can <laughs> share it. with our listeners? Uh yeah, here's a listicle. You like um the best one that's ever given been given to me is like you have a stove with four burners. So you know like nice domestic context here. And you can really only you have to make some decisions, right? Priorities. Like you ha- you can only cook like four dishes, right? And you're not gonna do a 12 course meal on that like four burner stove. Not without the help of other people for sure. So if it's just you, my advice is you're going to have to turn something off. And unfortunately, like family, this is going to sound really depressing. You have family, friends, right? Partner or love, work, right? And then maybe a side hustle. But I just named five things, right? So you have to turn one of them off. A lot of people turn friends off and then they find friends maybe in their work, as we know. Some people turn family off and then they end up really depressed. They're like, oh my God, I wasted my life. Why wasn't I there for them?" Um, You know, some people turn off the financial bit that I mentioned and then they end up like desperate and they have to quit. Right? So it's a kind of a balancing act. You have to kind of choose the, mo- the most important things for you. I would say that I've turned friends mostly off. I will like I'm just going to be honest rather than like tell the audience a lie. My friends are mostly the people I'm creative with and they often are collaborators uh, and I actually find it wonderful. I can travel almost anywhere in the world and there's someone I've worked with, but they're also a really good friend and we kind of don't think about it as work anyway. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to say, but that's what I really enjoy. So it brings me energy to be around those people.
2: I love this analogy a ton, a ton, a ton, because I even imagine like... I love cooking in the kitchen (laughs) and find myself pretty good at having multiple things on the stove at once. So I can even see like... (laughs) taking the analogy a little <laughs> bit further, like just turning things off and on at will. So it's not yeah. like turning on your stove and letting things simmer for eight years. That's true. And you then don't even let with... the rice burn, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? You can come back and switch things around as needed. And yeah. I, I find that, I find that analogy pretty true for myself as well. There are only, only so many buckets that can be filled at any moment. Um, but... You can switch them around. So I, I, I feel like, like
0: mine are all boiling over right now. Not going to lie. <laughs> like Everything's brilliant. like things. OK, so in my family, me and my brother and sister, we get together every weekend and hang out with my parents. And we always end up at my sister's house playing this game on the PlayStation called Overcooked and Uh, like things are getting set on fire and my three-year-old likes playing it too and he likes just grabbing the fire extinguisher and like running around in circles and like the little characters can cuss and so he's just like cussing and like putting things out anyway (laughs) but I really want to just acknowledge and say thank you for admitting that like the friend's is kind of the thing that you had to turn off, and that really being in the trenches with other creatives still gives you those fulfilling relationships. Cause I've certainly experienced that. Um, even with, I don't know, I guess like I'm at this point in my life where whenever it comes to my friendships, I'd rather be creating something with you than like just standing around. At a bar drinking, Mm. like I'd rather be podcasting or working on a project. And I think that that actually really deepens your friendships and it gives them more meaning, even if it doesn't feel as like, I don't know, um, flippant or fun or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it's it brings depth and a layeredness to your relationships, honestly.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's some of the uh, best experience of my experiences of my life outside of, you know, the experiences I've had with my partner and family have come from pursuing just like this creative passion with other people. So I definitely agree. Of course, it gets stressful sometimes too. Right,
0: I know. I mean, there also are those moments where you look around and you're like, why don't I have any friends to invite to my birthday party? (laughs) Yes, that happens to me every year.
1: Like, if I wanted to host a
0: conference, I could fill a room. But if I wanted to have a birthday party, it's like, well, maybe it should be a
1: birthday podcast.
0: (laughs) <laughs> like, we can up. make it work, Kathleen, for <laughs> sure. Don't you fret about your birthday. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk a little bit about your role then at FreshBooks as creative director. Can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory? Because it sounds mm-hmm. like coming from, you know, an art family um, and a family that has like roots in agency and all that. But then also your art background, like a fine arts background, how did that kind of send you into fresh books and like rising up to creative director there?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so the the short form story is um, my parents were always super supportive but like incredibly judgmental. Right. It's like everyone's great. <laughs> but like uh, they they said you know pursue your creative passion. I was very lucky, very privileged in that in that way. Um, they weren't like go get a practical degree. They said do the you seem to love art. You should do more of that. And the design stuff, they just always, like, mentored me and, like, let me work in the family business. And so actually at a very young age, they were like, don't apply to a job as a designer. Why don't you apply as an art director? (laughs) Uh, Because, if you know, whatever level you come in at is kind of like probably the way people are going to treat you. Um, And so I started out doing design early on, but then I got a lot of opportunities to do art direction at a very young age, like, again, an embarrassingly young age, and I kind of faked it till I made it. And I remember actually, the first art direction job I got was not because I was known as a designer, but because I was known as an artist for doing really experimental weird stuff in the city. Here in Toronto, I had a collective and we did like video installations and restaurants and bars. And we were just like self starting. And this sort of small um, youth marketing agency heard about it and was like, Oh, we're like, we're going to do this weird uh, thing. We want to open a gallery for Nike, which by the way is a terrible idea. It was a disaster, but yeah. like, we need someone like you who can think across, you know, all of these different problems that we're going to encounter. We can think through this creatively and who has the experience kind of at that grassroots level, not to just like copy what someone else is doing, but generate new ideas. And so, I was like, "Yeah, I'll do that," and I, and they're like, "Well, what would you what would you call yourself?" And I just said I'd call myself an art director in that context. Um, and I didn't actually, I remember actually, I didn't know what that meant because <laughs> I was like, "I, was I just like, kind of talk it. about
0: this because I feel like there's like a graphic designer, art director, yeah. and creative director, and what is the difference?"
1: Yeah, and I think like the di- in the best cases, a designer, is actually probably what you should call yourself, and is like capable of doing all of those things, right? And it's really just a pay scale thing pretty much like all of these things are kind of just status uh, and pay scale things. So they're, they're not really important to doing a great job. They're only important if you, you know, you want to get paid a little bit more to be honest with uh, the audience about things. So I remember calling my brother and saying like, Hey, um, what's an art director? <laughs> like I just said, they said they wanted something like this and I said, I think it's an art director. And what is that? Cause he was doing art direction or had done some, So I called my brother and he's like, well, it's kind of like this or that. And I was like, okay, I know enough. I'm just like, I'll just dive in and see what the work is. And uh, yeah. And then I stayed with them actually only a year. And I was like, this sucks. (laughs) This is like way too much work. And I mean, they're asking me to do artwork as a job and I'd rather just like go do art. So I went back to grad school. And then when I finished grad school, I came out. And again, like I said earlier, I wanted to be an artist full time, but that was really almost uh, impossible. So I leaned on what was easy for me to do, which was to freelance as a, like as an art director. Um, and I had that title from the past. Like so it had some credibility and started to do work for different agencies and some of the, and the one that I used to work for too. And then actually FreshBooks was a client um, of mine that came calling one day. So through a friend of a friend or something like that, they had a problem where their brand was like scattered and all over the place and they you know, nothing, they were really creative. They're really creative people. It's a really creative company, a really awesome company, but they like just needed someone to help focus, um, focus everything. And they had some difficult challenges around that, uh, including how to, their product integrated with their marketing and stuff like that. And so I said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll help out. And then this three month project actually turned into the career I've had here, which is a seven or eight year long career. Um, and it was, yeah, it really just, I just continued to take on new challenges. Once I got in here, I just found that some of the things that they were asking me to do or the opportunities that I saw were challenges that I'd never faced before. Cause I'd always been in agencies and I don't know if pe- maybe your listeners have had this experience, but there's two worlds. There's this agency world where a client comes to you with work. And then there's this like, what you were told is a terrible world where you're like internal on a company and like, Ooh, it's going to be so boring. It's the same work every day. But in this case, it wasn't boring. In fact, it was the first time I could ever like do something, fail at it, and then like do a better thing. (laughs) Uh, And then I became just addicted to that concept of like continuously improving things. That's why I say like a three-month project turned into a seven-year project because I got to like build this thing all the way up and build a team around it and work with really inspiring people and now like work on software products and and everything, so... uh Okay, yeah. so
0: whenever you went from freelancing to going in-house full-time, like, what factored into your decision-making process there? And I'm asking for maybe some of our freelancers who might be working on a contract, and they're like, you know... I'm thinking about it, but maybe ego is getting in the way or they had this dream of working for themselves. And so, you know, if they change the narrative, they're changing Mm -hmm. the dream. So did any of that factor into your decision making process? Was there any angst over it or did it just make sense?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I said, no, Uh, I said, said, no, I don't want to work here. Why would I give up on the dream? Um, And I like I was living part time in Berlin at the time. It was like, it was fantastic. (laughs) Why would I stop doing that? And what was great about what the first time I said no because I was used to saying yes as most creatives are. It's like I'll take whatever work you can give me. Oh, it's creative. I won't even need to get paid. You know, just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so this was like one of the first times I think I'd received some advice or something. But I was also just like happy with what I had accomplished. Like I was surviving, and so I said no. And that was when magical things happened, which was like the first, it was the first time FreshBooks was the first company to ever say, oh, well, what would it take? Like, what would, what, like, how could we make this work? And I was like, what? Oh, someone's asking me what I want. I've never had that. It's always been the other way. And so I said, yeah, I'd need to work like 70% time. Uh, I think I said even less than that, Uh, like three days a week, I think I said. And then, cause I, cause I was, it takes me about five days a week to do my artwork stuff. And I want a day off, and they compromised and we we ended up at eighty percent time, uh, which is what the arrangement I still have with them today and uh, in exchange for eighty percent pay actually, but at the time for me, like having creative space was way more important than than pay, and that's that's kind of how it went so it was I really only did it because I said no, and then they were willing to like negotiate, which I think I was lucky to find uh, but yeah.
2: Right. And it doesn't sound like it was like a one-time negotiation. If you're still doing 80% time, this is it, it sounds like you started a relationship that was going to be open to growing and staying around as you grew and stay around, which sounds pretty dreamy, too. I feel like it sounds similar to our relationship with fresh books. <laughs> FreshBooks is great. Like we start
0: with ads and then we're like but can you also buy us a yacht (laughs) Right (laughs) in Miami. That's
1: that's on the way. We've got that uh, almost ready to go here. We've got a team working on your yacht.
0: (laughs) Okay so then I think that this really ties into the culture at FreshBooks in general being super creative and open and it's one of the reasons why we love working with you guys and whenever we had our Being Boss Toronto event up at FreshBooks hearing your talk on idea thinking um, I just see how it can apply to so many different creatives in companies or agencies or solopreneurs like of all different sizes so could we get into that a little bit like tell us a little bit about idea thinking and like what those steps are yeah, so
1: I think, I, yeah, des- like design thinking is kind of the... the oh, sorry, the- I
0: was calling it idea thinking, design thinking. No, no,
1: but I actually like, I, I don't <laughs> mind idea thinking, it's a good rebrand. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, design thinking is something uh, I brought with me when I came to FreshBooks. It was sort of, it's a methodology that's been around for a while, but it's really started to get popular in the mid-aughts. Um, and as I like call out the s- sort of what it is... As I start to talk about what it is, I'm sure your listeners are going to be like, that's what I do. And I think that that's the right attitude. So, But it's just like a reminder, if you will, of like what we all know is the right kind of way. When we feel good about a project we're working on, it's usually because we followed these basic steps that have henceforth been packaged by different companies or whomever authors. But really, everyone agrees to call it now design thinking, which is the design process that's existed since... I don't know, like Ray and Charles Eames had a studio in California in the 1940s, right? So basically um, design thinking is like a five-step sort of process, and you can kind of come in at any step, but generally speaking, I like to start with um, the first step being empathy. Uh, And so that's just like going out into the world and whether it's a customer or a client, starting with listening, right? Like who would disagree with that? Like start with listening, right? (laughs) Don't just jump to a solution. And then from that listening though, an observation, defining a problem. And that's the second step, kind of defining a problem statement. Um, So like, what is it that I observed or I think I observed? Then taking that problem statement and asking yourself like, how might, We or how might I solve that that problem? Uh, And then once you have like sort of generated a lot of ideas, sort of converging around one you think might represent a solution, and saying, "Hey, this is my hypothesis." It's kind of a little bit scientific that way, Um, saying, "I think this would work." And so, building a prototype from that, and then the last step, which is kind of the most important step, is then like very quickly throwing that out into the world and testing it out. Um, and so, and then seeing, observing again, going back to empathy, observing what the reaction was to that thing. So that, that, like I said, it probably sounds familiar. Like you're working on a logo. It's like, Oh, I just sketched a logo. I'm going to share it with the client. And Oh, they said it sucks. Okay. I'm going to make these adjustments baked up based on what I observed. But if you do this in a methodical way, you, you know, and you don't skip any steps, it can be really, really, um, great because it's iterative. You're always building on the last, uh, last cycle.
2: Right. I feel this is this is sort of a solution to two common issues that I see in creatives. And one is is creating inside a box. So not ever going out and seeing what the feedback could be and just like spinning their wheels wherever they are doing the thing and then one day sharing it and the whole whole world being like, "Well, what is that?" Because because they didn't bother getting feedback along the way. So one is working inside a box. And the second one is Inside of a box. I don't remember what my second one was. (laughs) Hold on. I I think getting it out as fast as possible. Maybe. Yes. No. But but go with
1: that one. Yeah. No. No. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's the thing. As designers, and I've been this way, and I still am this way. Like it doesn't feel always natural to share something that you know isn't right yet or perfect, right? Because a lot of us are perfectionists and we care about quality and detail. And it's like, how could I put out this disgusting thing in it? And you convince yourself in a feedback loop inside your head, oh, this is what they're going to think, right? And so that's the biggest mistake we make is we make assumptions about what we think people will think instead of actually just testing those assumptions with real people.
2: Right. And once you systemize it, it's not that much of an issue. I know so many creators who have such, who can seriously struggle with getting feedback because yeah. they're probably only doing it at like these, you know, high points in a project or when it's like last moment necessary. But if you're systemizing that feedback and it just becomes part of your creative process, it doesn't hold that much weight over you anymore.
1: Yeah, it's nothing to be afraid of at that point. Also, the longer you work on things, the oh shit factor like kind of increases exponentially, right? And if you get like, what is this kind of feedback on the last day at the 11th hour? You're like, well, I can't do anything about it anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so It's always best to kind of get stuff out. Like I had a teacher once who taught me like, you know, just don't ever go beyond the sketch on that first round. Like just even a conversation is a form of design, right? Like this is what I'm thinking, right? And you can do that with your client, but you can also do that with the stakeholder or someone you're working with, a collaborator, hey, a podcast Uh, co-host. And that's the cheapest thing you can do to validate, hey, I think this might work or this, you know, just to get the data that you need to to make a better product ultimately without spinning neurotically out of control.
2: (laughs) For sure, we know creatives tend to do that. So (laughs) systemizing, not doing that is super important. I wanted to talk about systemizing a little
0: bit and the structure around design thinking, because I think a lot of us, as you were mentioning, Jeremy, use design thinking intuitively in our creative process. Like, it's kind of just the natural backbone of how people make things happen, right? But do you really um like let's say you're setting up your your tasks in asana or whatever project management software you have like are you laying out those five steps and saying okay for this phase i need to go do a survey or call up some of our customers or do this and then in this next step here are some action steps associated with that like have you actually literally systemized this and worked within that structure or is it still kind of more intuitive
1: I mean, at FreshBooks, we have like a like a pretty defined way of doing it. But I would say my personal practice, it's become so innate that I really don't have very many other ways of working. I will say sometimes, though, and I, like I've leaned into um, like doing other steps first. So like instead of like sometimes I, you know, like I don't need to empathize with my own creative process because I kind of know the space that I'm in. And so I might start with a prototype, like I might skip a bunch of steps. And throw that out into the world and get feedback as quickly as possible and then make that observation and then use that to cycle again. So I might skip steps here or there, but generally um, just, just so I can get back to the start again kind of thing. But generally speaking, it's, it's like programmed now for me. I can't really think any other way. But then also as an artist, I was trained to do this. So like it was like, you know, of course you do a sketch before you do a masterpiece or whatever, right? That's what you're taught to do.
0: Exactly. So can we go back through the steps and maybe talk about different pitfalls or mistakes or challenges that you might encounter in each step and how to maybe overcome those?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, like the first step is where most people make a ton of mistakes in empathizing. Which is hard to do and and some would say impossible to do real, really, right? To really understand another human being, right? You can't get inside of their skin or inside of their head unless you're like a psychopath or something like that. And even (laughs) then it wouldn't, just wouldn't work out. So, and what, you know, the, the pitfall there is you're bringing a lot of your own unconscious bias to your observation of the world, right? So whatever you think is true, even as you're observing it and doing your best to listen, you're also bringing all of your experiences to that observation. And so a lot of people get tripped up by their unconscious bias, what they think they see, you know, and believing that that's true. Um, And so, and there are tricks to get around that, which I could do a whole podcast on, but jet like the best trick is just like to open your ears, to listen and observe without judgment. I often like coach people on like, um, you know, reserving judgment because it's a different way of uh, thinking, right? Like if you're judging, it means you're processing what you're seeing rather than actually seeing it. If you're drawing, I'm sure anyone who's taking a drawing lesson, they know that they have to turn off a certain part of their brain to actually see what they're drawing, right? Like to see light and dark instead of outline. You need to like learn to draw, and you know to learn to see. Uh, there's a lot of books on that topic. So a lot of people forget I that. I I'm, I'm
0: remembering my like art school days of like drawing upside down.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> so, like, yeah. like
0: really seeing it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Like I often. Um, yeah, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of things you can do. You can like do like we did at the beginning of this podcast where we recorded. You can do all kinds of things. Like you can like. Just like stop doing anything, don't think or like don't, don't speak, just nothing, just pure meditation for 30 seconds. Try that, then observe, right? Or like you said, change the context, move around, you know, figure out how you could see something from another perspective. There are lots of little things you can do, but ultimately it all comes down to first recognizing that you're probably bringing bias to whatever you're observing. Um, and certainly for me, as like a straight white male, like, I have to recognize that if I'm serving someone else, that I'm probably bringing a ton of cultural, sociological baggage to whatever I'm observing. And so I really need to reserve judgment. Um, and just if like... If
0: only there were more straight white males like you, Jeremy. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. I, yeah. If maybe, maybe if in general, there's just less white, straight white males. But think, like, right. Just... <laughs> <laughs> That, that
2: is a series. solution I had not considered yet. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. part of the reason
0: why we're one and done.
2: Because yeah, The right. world yeah.
0: doesn't need more.
1: <laughs> well, I would say like, and if only more of them asked more W questions, like instead of mansplaining or whatever, right? So if only more of them reserved judgment. So that's the first step. And I think the biggest pitfall people make is that they judge too soon and they fail to actually observe.
0: I just want to mention too, like this idea of there's something that you said about processing and like as you're processing something, you are judging it. And it really is making me think about this in a different way. And anytime I'm trying to process, like I'm trying to just come to a solution as fast as possible, probably because I'm afraid. Like as a designer or an artist or a podcaster or a writer or anything, I'm just afraid that I'm never going to get to that solution. So I start immediately processing and trying to put that right. at the beginning of the process. Right. Like
1: we've all been in those ridiculous meetings and there's a short deadline, oh my God, it's gonna Friday, they want something by Friday. What could we do? Right? You you jump straight to the solution. We could do this, we could do that. I was like, well, why would we do any of those things? No one stops to ask. Uh, and if you start with that why, you know, then you're really, you're switching, you're, you're, you're flipping the game, right? And you're moving into empathy. Um, so I think it's very, very important if you ever catch yourself in that position. But even as you're trying to observe, you're going to try and jump to, oh, we could do this to solve that problem. But it's way too soon to be thinking that way. And yeah, if you just spent 90% of your time on the empathy part, actually, you would probably have a much better idea anyway. Just like get out of the, get out of the way of yourself, basically. So should I keep going through these, or like, yeah? There's like,
0: I mean, wait, okay. So we've gone through empathy, and then we what, the
1: next? One? <laughs> yeah, one of five steps.
0: Okay, yeah, let's keep going. Okay,
1: okay. so in the next step, um, which would be like defining a problem or definition, I think the key thing here is that um, what you want to observe is like it depends on the context, but generally, like there's a there are two kinds of things you're looking for, you know, from your observations. Things that surprised you, which would be what I would call insights, right? Like um, the things that you just didn't expect, right? And if you did your job right, you'd there'd be a lot of those things because you've reserved judgment. You're like, "Whoa, I didn't realize that uh, women had feelings," or, something like that. <laughs> 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 or whatever it may be, exactly, whatever
2: it may et be, right? I didn't realize
1: that. Uh, things suck uh, for them when I act this way. So that would be like one of, one of the things you might you might be looking for. The other thing would be like a need, which is a verb, like something someone's trying to do or achieve. And in most contexts, there's like some kind of a need, right? In marketing world, they might call that an ask or something like that. But you would have, we want to observe that ask or get more information on what it actually is and why it matters to them. So those would be the kind of the two things that are most important when defining a problem that you're going to be solving is like, you know, is basically the the insight, like the, the surprising thing that you just didn't expect and the ask or the why, why are we, you know, what is it they're trying to achieve and why are they trying to achieve that? Um, and so you have to really have done a good job on the previous step to make this actually work. And coming out of that, hopefully you have some kind of a problem statement, which would be something like. I have observed this and it's causing this uh, negative outcome or this impact or whatever. And, and so then you can ask yourself, um, and this is kind of an important word hack that a lot of people recommend. I think it came out of Google or IDEO. I can't remember um, which is if you phrase it kind of as a, how might we, which is like, to you want to, what you want to do at this stage is like open um, the language to the, you know, the most number of possibilities, right. And using language that doesn't say like, um, doesn't Doesn't constrain your opportunity to solve a problem um, in as many ways as pro- possible is super important. A lot of people create these super narrow. Um, problem statements when they're working on stuff and even clients briefs can sometimes be that like make a ad starring chickens for (laughs) you know kfc or something like that like well do we like why why do you want chickens this thing you're already defining the solution so a lot of people trip up by putting a solution in their problem and that's not really a problem i guess that would be the big trip up there Okay, I have
0: a question, like bringing this back to the scientific experiment side of things, is it possible to have too many variables? Like should you, even though you don't want to have that specific or like that solution in the problem statement, do you want to try and narrow in on like one variable to solve at a time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think like I would always recommend there being, you could like writing more than one problem statement if you're writing, if you're in the habit of doing that. Insane. Like whenever And Whenever
0: you were redesigning FreshBooks, which yeah. is like a huge project, because it wasn't just a branding project. It was like literally changing the yeah. entire interface and user experience. Did you have a lot of different problem statements? Yeah, yeah. The There's like, like different um, teams working on those. Uh,
1: yes, yeah. like absolutely. We've probably written about a thousand statements that comprise all of the problems we were trying to solve and there day there are new ones. And so, but I will say that you can, you want to start at the macro level and work your way down in granularity. That's where it is important eventually to get to specifics. But when you're like trying to solve a problem, like I need to redesign a whole product and a brand and the whole, you know, and a strategy for the future, you kind of want to start with those broad strokes first. Um, as you know, in creating anything long-term, you know, start with the big broad strokes and strategy and hopefully those boil down to some principles that can then inform, you know, more and more granular problems. Um, that's yeah. So I think it's more like there's a pyramid of decisions that you need to make. I know, but don't and start I know. at the also, bottom. also, like
0: thinking about our own creative process. Like for me and Emily, we probably get down into the granular and then expand back out to broad strokes. Like we, I, I would even imagine that we start on a more granular area, like because that's where we can see the problem, mm. and then going back out to broad strokes. Like okay, let's widen this out a little bit, and then narrowing back in.
1: Do you guys ever do... Sorry, not you guys. I shouldn't use that language. That's you okay. all um, ever use... Um, like, do you ever say... Do you ever do five whys? Or have you ever heard that concept, which is to ask why five times? Like, nice. Okay, yeah. So that would be... You could do that, right? You could start at the very specific. You'd say, like, um, I don't know, like, uh, something very, very specific about whatever problem you're solving and then just ask, why is that? And then, you know, between two of you, you might generate... An answer. And then if, you know, the next person asks why. If you do that five times, theoretically, you should get to something that's quite systemic. Um, but it could also lead to something very specific, and that's not a bad thing.
0: I know this um, is probably like going off on a tangent a little bit, but I feel like the main barriers for creative entrepreneurs and getting more customers always comes down to time and money. Like Those seem mm-hmm. to always be the barriers that right. people throw out. And I think that asking five whys, like why do people need more time? Mm-hmm. And then asking the why of that answer and really getting down to – um The why is behind time and money are really what get you to the root of how to sell to your customer or like what their real problem is.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it's a very that's a very cheap and easy trick, which is write why five times on a piece of paper and then just, you know, remember and it's hard, but it's hard to do. Right. Because. Especially if you're talking to someone else, like a stakeholder, when you ask why, and you can use other language, as long as it's in the spirit of why, sometimes people get defensive about like, what do you mean, why do I care about this? It's
0: super challenging. Even whenever yeah. we do it to ourselves, it's super challenging. And I want to give up by the second why. Like, just because. <laughs> just because, yeah. It's like I'm speaking uh, to my inner toddler. Because so I, I easily said would just so. say, <laughs>
1: <laughs> My easy trick to avoid that is just say, tell me more about that. <laughs> And that's a lot less, uh, like, sort of confrontational. Yeah. Or why do you think that is? Like, as long as it's just not like, why?
0: Design (laughs) thinking therapy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what next?
1: Okay, so next, uh, you want to, like, you you have this problem worth solving. Hopefully, you're excited about it. The next thing you would want to do is come up with some ideas, some solutions. Um, And the biggest pitfall here would be to, like, focus in on one solution too early, what they call in design, like, you know, converging too early. So you might have like five ideas in a meeting. You're like, no, nah, we'll just do this one because the rest, it's not, yeah, this is the one I like, you know, you might choose a favorite too early. Um, or you might not even generate any other ideas. You just like, no, it's gotta be this. Um, and the problem with doing that is you're like potentially, missing out on all kinds of, like, just delightful, (laughs) crazy ideas. And my biggest trick for this is, like, a very common one. I'm sure people have heard of this, which is called Crazy 8s. And just take a piece of paper, fold it into 8, and then set a timer for under 10 minutes, like, 5 minutes even, and very quickly sketch out 8 ideas to any problem. Like, and I don't know why it's 8, don't ask me, (laughs) but it's really hard to do. Um, But it gets easier the more you do it. And you just want to like, you you don't want to write. That's the other thing. It's like generally when generating ideas, language for some reason prevents us from thinking divergently, from thinking about the most number of possibilities. And so typically you should draw. I don't know if that's recommended very often outside of uh, design. Like I don't know how many business people are drawing, but I, when I'm coaching business people on how to think and ideate you know, I, t- I teach them to draw, um, because it uses a different part of the brain. And also you don't get caught in the details, like the grammar or the words. And you've all, we've all been there when someone's like, I don't think that's quite the right word you're using or whatever. Um, but a triangle, no one can judge that anyway. So, and you don't have to be good at drawing. You just have to be able to like convey an abstract idea, right. Without language very quickly. Um, so that's the, that's kind of like the main thing to do in ideation. And then When you get a large volume of ideas, it's much easier to see, you know, there's crossover potentially where one idea is half good and you could take from the other. And then when one of your ideas might, you might be really excited about and you want to refine it, you might later realize, oh, no, shit, this won't work. But you have those like seven other ideas from earlier. Um, You're like, oh, but this, that's another jumping off point. We could go that way instead, instead of being just stuck, you know. And so if you do that with a team of people, it's even more exciting because you're potentially generating like 40 ideas in five minutes. Um, and if you could do that, like open, close, like 40 ideas, then back down to one idea, then 40 ideas. If you do that over and over again in a period of like if you do it in, a th- in, in like a cycle of three, like do it three times. I challenge the listeners to do this uh, in a in a span of a half an hour. You'll be amazed at what you're able to achieve in 30 minutes that would have otherwise taken a week of just following one stubborn idea through
2: this has me craving the, like, most intense brainstorm session. <laughs> Kathleen, bring your papers. I know, right? I just want to brainstorm now
0: because I will say that we probably very quickly go to just creating the thing. Yeah. I mean, we might kind of go through this process just very fast, like, in our minds, but it's not You might not be doing it in your head, yeah. And I think that there is, though, something that is really important to actually going through the process and articulating each step of the process. So if this is your first time to go through a creative process or to really give your creative process more boundaries and structure and definition to actually do these exercises might astound you. Like it's not enough. I talk about this all the time with the chalkboard method, but it's not enough to understand the concept, like actually going through it will do wonders for your creative process right
1: yeah and we do tend to self-edit and say well i don't need it because i'm pro or whatever i will say the other thing that's really important to ideation is like um and so you said brainstorming and like immediately i was like oh no that's a bad word and but like it's just not the current like the douchebag word now is ideation or whatever like it's the (laughs) industry word
2: gotcha
1: thank you for scoring me on that why is brainstorming
0: a bad word
1: I think because it, like, well, so here's what happened is, like, it it got out that brainstorming was producing worse ideas. Like, there are a bunch of studies where groups of people get together. And I forgot to say, like, apparently that, you know, you get this hippo problem, the highest paid person in the room. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Where it just ends up being not, like, really a brainstorm or it's, like, a brain jerk. Like, someone owns the room and shames everyone else. There are no bad ideas, but really there's, like, the loudest idea that wins. And so, like, the pitfall there is, like, that you don't actually end up with those 40 ideas. And the way around that is, like, is to do, like, it alone. And this is maybe great for your listeners, which is, like, you might think you need a group of people to do ideation or brainstorming with. But actually, like, at a company like ours and at the biggest companies in the world now, people do, like, they sit quietly for five minutes and they just come up with ideas. And then they share them um, and they generate far more ideas in isolation like solo just at the idea phase actually the one time where you can just be it's just you and it's wonderful it's great like it's where you wanted to be all the whole time anyway right (laughs) right
2: that's what i want to do not brainstorming but ideating yeah Yeah. i want to come with ideas all day (laughs) yeah at my
0: branding agency whenever we're taking people through our creative process um If it's with an organization, sometimes what we do is there's a bunch of white papers hanging up and a bunch of different ideas and people are kind of voting with stickers. Oh, yeah. And if the CEO goes first, people are just following behind him and like – or her and just sticking their dot – On whatever idea they put their dot on. And so we've started like mixing up colors so that nobody knows. And we have (laughs) in different areas. But this is even making me think about how we go through that process and how we could better facilitate better ideas coming out of that process.
1: And what you're solving with the dot voting problem, of course, is the same problem I just described, which is like when it comes time to sharing ideas, who's going to choose the right idea? Oh, like... The loudest voice again. There they are. Right. right. Um, and they might not be thoughtfully considering everyone's point of view. And the and sometimes like at that phase, the best ideas are kind of the ones everyone thinks are stupid. Like they're these really fragile ideas. And I'm sure you maybe you haven't heard of this, but I like to use this like um, this like kind of sent like a grammar hack, which is to make sure everyone's kind of saying yes and when they see an idea, right, like building on it rather than. Just saying, like, what's wrong with it or outlining what's wrong with it, but sort of like, you know, this everything's super fragile at that stage, but that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It just means it needs help. It needs nurturing. It needs some support. But um, okay. loud people don't always see that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Awesome. So have we gone through all five of our steps? No. No? We <laughs> well, did three, we correct? can like,
1: combine the two last steps yes. into one, just Let's for the it. sake of time. And, our, and our, our listeners are probably almost at work, and they need to get out of the car. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, prototype and test are the next two steps. But basically, like, coming up with something that represents what you think the final object might be realistically in some kind of scenario – And then putting in front of the end user or end customer. So, you know, I would encourage people in a client scenario, don't always think of your client as the end customer. If you could get to the real customer, like the person they're serving, that would be ideal. Um, Now, of course, they've had a lot of experiences, but like I said earlier, they're also bringing a lot of their bias to a conversation. Um, So whenever possible, we try, at least at FreshBooks and in my life, outside of FreshBooks, to get it in front of the final uh, customer, the, the final consumer, whomever. Um, and before I do that, making sure that I have a hypothesis, which is just in like, without getting into science language, like what I think will be true. Um, and which in my experience is 90% of the time, absolutely wrong.
2: (laughs) Then you're doing
0: it right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And how do you, how do you measure what's true? Like, so for you in performance art, is it getting laughs? Is it getting attendance or, you know, what is that like?
1: Yeah, I think for me, yeah. So you you can it can be any. It doesn't have to be like it should be measurable, but it doesn't have to be like from a data MySQL dashboard or something like that. It can be like you said. It could be like I expect that I'm going to get a laugh on this joke, right? Um, or it could be I expect this person will say this. Uh, they'll notice this. Given my objective, right, was to like convince them to buy this thing. I expect they will click this button or. They will, when I ask them what this advertisement was about, they'll be able to tell me what it's about, right? Like, just make it so that you can, you can test, like a test has to have an answer and you have to be able to observe the answer, basically. That's all.
2: For sure. I love this. And, and is this a process that you super cognizantly go through with your team consistently when you guys are facing problems?
1: Yeah, so we have like we, we have a version of this process that um, yeah we've modified for our teams, in which they basically interact in every week with customers, where they're like observing, defining the problem, coming up with ideas, prototyping, and testing with them on a weekly cycle. We do it once a week at least, um, and we just repeat that. Um, so I guess it's you know fifty or so times a year.
0: I was about to say, it feels like you guys have really, with this process, embraced a culture of, I don't know, not getting it right the first time. Like, it seems like you guys are really open to, um, I don't want to say failing, but like failing, for lack of a better word, because it's really just about iterating and making it better every single time. And you can't make it better without knowing what went wrong. But yeah. I think so many of us are afraid to confront, like, what went wrong, right?
1: Yeah, I will say wrong. that, like... Yeah. I'll be, I'll be very honest. I think even, you know, even though we have this process, I notice all the time us slipping back and it's like very, you want it. It's like so relaxing. That's like such a a nice velvety, like lounge chair to sit back into, you know, just get into the solution. Like, oh, it feels so good to get into that warm bath where I don't, others aren't judging me and you know, where I don't have to put myself and my reputation on the line week over week. And so I would say it's like, you know, there, you need to do, it's, con- you're constantly diligent about it. Um, and that's kind of my job as well here, right, is to make sure that teams are in an environment where it feels a little like a warm bath, hopefully, instead of like a cold shower every time they go through this process. Because it can feel a little uncomfortable, I'll just be yeah, honest. Yeah, it's like
0: super vulnerable.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so making sure it's right. That's right. Making sure that you're bringing your whole self to, and, and and exposing yourself to this vulnerability, it can be really, uh, really challenging. And our team slip in, back into bad habits all the time. I do as well. And there's no judgment there, but it's just like, you know, you remind yourself that, oh, yeah, that's why we do it this way. You know, every time you mess it up, you kind of figure it out again. And um so we're always doing
2: i could definitely see it being super vulnerable within a t- within a team but as like a solo entrepreneur someone who's really just doing it for yourself i see it being the most like The most skill building like brain exercise almost to like really look at all of your problems from as many facets as possible after gathering all the information you need to really go at it like that's that's something that will teach you about your people and what you do and how you serve them in ways that, you know, nothing else really will if you're really putting yourself through that cycle every single time you're faced with a problem or looking for, um, A new solution to a problem.
0: I know. You're
2: just going to be super boss.
0: I know. I feel like a lot of the creators we talk to crave more space to make things with their hands. And I feel like this is like a very hands on process like this is giving you structure to create the space to be incredibly creative um, but without feeling like you're floundering or without feeling like I might as well just go watch YouTube for three hours or I think it really gives it this um, it gives the creative process boundaries that you can really flourish within.
1: Yeah, and hopefully some like objective distance is good because we're such like subjective beings every once in a while. I will say like as, as a like almost like a segue, I use this not just for design or creative projects, but I kind of optimize everything this way now. So, uh, and I, I have a hard time not doing that. So my partner and wife often says, you know, that I shouldn't bring my work life into our relationship. And I often <laughs> honestly, it's made
2: you dis- break out the eight pieces of paper for date night.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I can't help like I'd certainly bring those empathy qualities to a relationship or to a problem that you're facing personally can also be super useful. And then like trying things out and then not being okay with admitting to someone that you were wrong, which I think is a super powerful concept socially, right? For us to try things out and then admit we were wrong and have the objective kind of relationship with our work to say like, oh my God, I messed up. And I didn't, I'm going to go back to empathizing and listening again. Um, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Good practice all around for sure. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming to hang out with us. Oh, no.
1: Thank you so much for having me um, and for your listeners for listening. If they're still there. I don't know. Maybe we maybe They yeah, are. They're <laughs> still they
2: totally there. are <laughs> eating it up. I'm sure. Um, all right. We have one. We have a I have a question for you. OK. What makes you feel most boss?
1: Uh, Oh, yeah, I thought about this uh, because you sent me the questions in advance. Uh, (laughs) And I actually had a hard time with this because I have like a kind of a a lame answer. The thing that makes me feel most boss is not being the boss, I guess, which would be listening, Um, you know, especially like because I am a boss. I had to like reflect I'm a boss to a lot of people here. Um, But the times I feel most boss is when I'm, I'm walking, like I go on walks with everyone here and I'm listening to people and I'm getting to know them and I'm building rapport and they're trusting me with their feelings, their thoughts. And I'm being surprised by things that I just didn't know were either problems or, you know, opportunities. And so I feel like when I do that, I'm in just this amazing place to coach people uh, based on the experience and the privilege I've had in my life. And so I feel most boss when I listen to people and then I give them some solid advice.
2: I love it. Good answer. I know. I
0: feel like that's one of my favorite answers yet. I agree. That was a good one. Good job. That was a good one. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And where can our listeners learn more about you and your projects and what you're working on?
1: Um, I think like, oh, yeah, maybe just Twitter. I know it's not... <laughs> It's not in style these days, but they just doubled the character limit so we could have a better conversation.
2: <laughs> Wait, when did that happen? Like last week, I think.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to kind of hack it, I think, to get it. Um, but anyway, at Jeremy Bailey on Twitter uh, is my handle.
2: Perfect.
0: Well, cool. thank you so much, Jeremy, for hanging out with us. It's been really cool getting to reconnect with you.
1: Oh, no, I loved it. I hope I can one day have you on my podcast.
0: <laughs> we would love to go on down. your podcast anytime. We're down.
2: All right.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Kathleen. I really appreciate this.
2: We have gotten so much amazing feedback over the years from listeners about how our podcast has helped them start to grow and uplevel their businesses. So we want to celebrate you. Here's the boss we're celebrating this week.
0: Hi, my name is Carolyn Bursky, and I am being boss. I'm a certified life and career coach working with ambitious women in their 20s at compassmaven.com, and this week I'm celebrating getting my first official paycheck from a speaking gig. I've been doing a bunch of unpaid speaking, um, but this is my first physical check in the mail for getting up and talking in front of people, and it feels so, so good. If you're feeling boss and want to submit your own boss moment or win, go to www.beingboss.club slash I am being boss. This episode of Being Boss was brought to you by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. Thank you to FreshBooks for sponsoring us. And you guys can try it for free by going to freshbooks.com slash being boss.